Welcome to Politics and Reform, where we'll be talking about a variety of topics pertaining to criminal justice reform, police brutality, systemic racism, and issues within our regional communities. We are here to talk and inform not only ourselves, but our audience with the opinions and critiques of those individuals that practice in these fields. Today, we're here with Danny Glover, a phenomenal actor you may know from the Lethal Weapon series and a longtime civil rights activist. Danny, it's great to talk with you today. Well, well it's great to be on this call right here, or Zoom call, as they call it now. Yeah. And to talk with you, it's canal. Yeah. And how, how are you doing in this world of COVID? Well, I, I'm, I'm doing well. I'm, I'm, I'm sheltered in place and staying safe. Good. I, we I wear my mask. I, I wash my hands. I do all the prerequisite things that are necessary to, to, you know, to keep safe and others safe as well. Exactly. You know, when we talk about this, this moment, this, this Zoom moment or this, this pandemic moment, we have to think about not only ourselves, but those people around us as well. Exactly. Uh, and maybe that, that, that puts us in a position to be a more caring people. Right. But who knows? We're learning so much about ourselves in this particular moment. Uh, and, and a great deal of what we're learning, hopefully it translates into a better way, a different way in which we respect, honor each other as human beings as well. Right, and I completely agree. Um, I concur. And you know, without, without further ado, let's get started with the first question, Danny. Um, now, I wanna ask, you know, tell the audience or the viewers uh, a little bit about yourself, you know, just beyond your acting career in Hollywood, um, your activism, such as your involvement in the political atmosphere. Maybe you wanna talk about, you know, you being a surrogate for the Bernie Sanders presidential campaign, um, you know, it's up to you. Well, one, one of the things, first of all, let's, let's, <laughs> let's get something very clear. Uh -huh. the, being an actor is the most unlikely thing that I thought when I was your age at all. There, there's no sense, or even younger than that, or even a little bit older than that age, as a right. young adult. And uh, the first thing that, that I would like to express in, 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 in the most, and, and, and I don't know how clear this will come across to people, uh, and particularly young people, that if not I'd been involved in movements, I'm a child of the civil rights movement. I was born in 1946, one year after the end of World War II, the war that would end all wars. I'm a child of that civil rights movement. I'm shaped by the ideas and ideals of the civil rights movement. Right. So that's the first movement that I, I became involved in um, as a child, as I've watched it unfold on, on, on television. I've watched the Montgomery bus, ball, bus boycott come into, come into life. And all of a sudden, these people that I saw as a young eight-year, nine-year-old child, these people look like me. Right. They, they look like me. And what, I, what they were doing, I felt was important. Did I know the significance of what they were doing? No, not really as an eight-year-old. But I got some idea from my parents the way they interpreted, the way they embraced that moment, that it was very, very, very important. Important. Well, it is. That moment for, for me is that moment for young people today. Right. What is that is happening? That that was the beginning. That was the start. And in 1955, that the courageous men and women in Montgomery, 
at Montgomery, Alabama, went on a bus strike and said they would not ride their, that bus until they were treated like they were human beings. They would not ride in a segregated back. They would not employ, and they would employ other means of getting transportation to school and work, but they would not ride that bus. They would call on everything. They would call communists. They would call agitators. They would call so many different things. But they kept, the, they, they stood tall and they, they re, redefined themselves as human beings in that. And that was something I learned. I couldn't digest that at nine years old, didn't know that at nine years old, but that was the beginning there. So basically, this profession that I've been doing, that I've been involved in for oh, well over 45 years, well over 45 years, that's a, right. that is an actor, uh, that this profession that I've been involved in is the result of all the things that have come in my life and, 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 and the essential part of what's come to my life is being engaged, involved in movements, whether the young students who marched and, and who, who segregated in Greenboro, uh, North Carolina, the Woolworths uh, lunch counter. I was 14 years old when I saw them. It was all over the news and all over television to Freedom Summer in 1964. I was 18 years old and graduating from high school. All these movements were movements that reflect and, and, and in so many different ways define my generation and, and specifically define me as well. Right. So, so the acting came as a result of that. And once, at one point I realized that I could do something with passion and say something about it. Right. The great Paul Robeson once said that artists are, are the gatekeepers of truth. That it's not enough for an artist, an artist, this is what he said, not enough for an artist to create the reality that is, but his responsibility, his or her responsibility right. is to create the possibility of what life and what the reality could be. Right. To imagine. And I think I think you've laid the groundwork and the framework for others to follow in your footsteps. You know, I look to you as not only a mentor, but I think an icon in not only your acting profession, but also what who and what you've inspired. I think that that's phenomenal that you're involved in the Bernie Sanders presidential campaign. And I think it's, you know, I think it's fantastic that you are leading these movements and and such as, you know, you're you're engaged with the public, you're engaged with the recent events, and you're also part of the Algebra Project. And, and I'm, I'm a part of the Algebra Project, right. which is an extraordinary project. Exactly. That, that, and and with, uh, developed by an extraordinary human being, someone that who was directly involved in the civil rights movement in Mississippi, mm -hmm. where he was shot, beaten, uh, and, 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 and and jailed for doing the simple thing of providing a, a corridor or an avenue for people who had not voted forever for a long time to register and vote. He was, he was beaten and shot and many people died as a result right. of that. Right. So when we talk about voting and, 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 and our willingness to vote, the fact is that, that Remember that people died for the right to vote. Exactly. People actually died for that. In, that, in the 20th century, just for a moment, they died for the right to vote. Right. And it's almost unconscionable 
than the, the right one. There's no neutral place where you can be. As Dante said, and Dr. King always created the great philosopher Dante, saying the hottest places in hell are reserved for those right. who in a moral crisis maintain their neutrality. Exactly. There's no neutral place. You have to be a citizen and vote and use your voice right. to use your voice to change. But also not only do you have to use your voice to change in the ballot box, you have to use your voice and your and your and, and your feet and your legs and your body to bring about the real change that you right. want, that we want to see. Right, and for those of the viewers that don't know, uh, Bob Moses, a civil rights activist, um, started the Algebra Project um, and, and kind of moving on into the modern day. You know, recent events such as the death of George Floyd and this entire, you know, Black Lives movement that we've seen um, in this decade, I'd like to argue, you know, and they sh it shows the passion and the anger of, you know, young Americans, even old Americans in some cases. And so I want to ask, you know, what was your reaction to these protests and these calls for defunding the police and demilitarization of the police and eventually the riots that formed for those who were opportunistic? Well, there are many things that happened. You know, the reaction or response to the injustice or the public lynching of George Floyd. It was a response to that, mm -hmm. a reaction. And people, people marched and used their bodies and got on the street and protested that. Mm -hmm. And, and, and for, for police all across the country, they put the police the, the, and, and all those, those institutions which, are, which, which attempt to repress people, they put them on notice right here. Exactly. exactly. They, that's what they did. They put them yeah. on. Now, the question is that how do we organize ourselves and exactly. and creating the kind of relationships with what what we call law enforcement, what we call law enforcement, create the kind of relationships that are healthy, that are affirmative of our, affirmative for us as citizens, and particularly citizens citizens of color, if citizens of color, but but let's say start with citizens of color because theirs is the most dramatic situation, citizens of color. So we have to, and, and the question becomes now, can the police force as we know it be reformed? Can it be transformed? That's the question. That's a major question for us. And because we have one thing about us and the human mind has something else that no one in the animal species has, that's imagination. Now, what do we want to imagine what this relationship is? You know, of course. We define, we define our lives by, by different things. We know that there's, there's illegal things that happen within that break the law, and there are ways in which citizens break the law. But, but does, that, does that criminalize everyone? Right. The sense of that, does that incriminalize everyone who is, who is Black or everyone who is LGBTQ or e everyone who is different in some sort of way. Right. And so those are the kind of questions that we had to ask. No one says that we don't need some sort of operation, some sort of entity, some sort of social relationship with those people who are, who are there to, to pr protect our well-being, right. our well-being. You know, the question about the police has always been, and law enforcement has always been, whose well-being are they protecting? 
Are they protecting those people who live on the hill in the white ivory towers? Or, I mean, not ivory towers, but with the houses that are in the community? Or they simply and simply are to, uh, to vilify those people who live in the community who are often poor, who are often working people, and who are often people of color? Those are the kind of reasons we think that we have to talk about. It's real. History only tells you that. History tells you that. We have long enough time to understand the relationship that policing has had to communities of color. We know that. We've seen it. It's been consistent throughout the history of this country. And so that's the question we have to ask ourselves. What do we want? What do we need? We see the increased militarization of the police. They're given, uh, they, 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 they resemble, uh, you know, some sort of video game as they march around in, in our urban communities dressed as if they're in some with sort tanks. of foreign land. With tanks, Danny. So and with tanks. With tanks. With tanks, all of that. Wait a minute. What are they saying? What did, what did they say? You often saw the policemen from days and, and, and when they were trying to, uh, trying to make the police officer uh, someone who is uh, uh, understanding and friendly right. to the community, they'd have a blue uniform on. Sometimes you wouldn't even see the pistol that they had or the instrument that they had. They'd have their, their little baton, you know, or whatever like this and everything else. But the thing now, to see them dressed as if you're looking, uh, looking at you somewhere in some war-torn area, some war-torn uh, place, you know, and dressed in there and using military formations. And, and that is a trend that's been happening for a long time vis-a-vis -vis the, the law enforcement. That has been happening and it's been, and it's been uh, facilitated by the federal government as well. Right, and I, you know, I completely agree. I think there's a, a famous philosopher, um, Zizek, you may know, and he often talks about, you know, what forms after the revolution, right? Because right now I feel that we're in a reactionary phase um, to all the you know, outrage and havoc that not only the federal government has performed, but we're in the midst of a global pandemic, you know, one that hasn't occurred in over a hundred years um, historically. And so you know, as a reaction to the Black Lives Matter movement, I wanna ask, you know, as a response, do you think that reparations are needed you know, is that a solution to these public protests and shifting perspectives? The, the idea of reparation has, has been a question since the end of slavery. Right. It, 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 was, it was first uh, expressed through getting 40 acres in a mule. Right, yes. Uh, and, 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 and that. And, and certainly, we, while we didn't get 40 acres in a mule, African-Americans, formerly enslaved Africans, after the emancipation and after their freedom, were made incredible strides in acquiring land. They made incredible strides in building businesses. And often those businesses and their position in society were a threat to other sectors yes, of society. Yes, to the redeemer, to the redeemer classes and the white and, 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 and white and then other classes right here, other yep. classes right here. So that's the case when we talk about that. We we can only in 1921 we saw what happened in on Black Wall Street in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Right. The riots that killed 
I mean, hundreds of people were killed in that riot, and some of them were buried in mass graves and everything. So there, there's a, this kind of violence. So mob violence has always been something that has affected African Americans. A new study by the Justice Institution, uh, run by the, the Justice Initiative, run by Brian Brian Stevenson, says that between 1865, the end of the Civil War. In 1867, the end of uh, Reconstruction, there were over 2,000 African Americans lynched in that 12-year period. Now, he's already chronicled through his memorial plaza in, in, in Montgomery, Alabama. Uh, uh, he's, already, he's, already, uh, he's already determined that from 1877 to 1950, there were more than 4,600 African-American men, men, women, and children who have been lynched. And so, and that's just what he's uncovered, uncovered right now through his research. We don't know what the number is. So we don't know what the number is. We don't know how many, how many bodies are, are lying around, lying in some deep river in, uh, in Mississippi in some way, whose bodies have stayed there. And, and, and certainly different kind of animals are fed on their bodies. We don't know what those numbers are yet. We don't know how many come up missing and their bodies are never recovered and everything. All these things that happen. So there's this violence that responds, violence that the Black Lives Matters addresses. It is why it says, you know, Black Lives Matter. And they're talking about just at this moment and the names, you know, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd and the name Trayvon Martin, and we can go on and on and on and, 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 and on and on and on. But before the history of this, the pattern, historical pattern, this is not just not something that just all of a sudden is a manifestation no. of modern American society. This is something throughout the history of this country as well. Exactly. And I think that, you know, moving on to this next question, you know, solving these issues is a multifaceted variable. I think that, you know, one could describe mass incarceration as being an extension of slavery. And I think that in this case, not only is mass incarceration in that equation, I think the criminal justice system is, I think police accountability is. And to these cases, you know, what do you believe needs to occur with police brutality and this defund the police movement and addressing the systemic oppressions in the criminal justice system and easing these racial tensions. What do we need to do, not only as activists, actors, regular citizens, you know, what, what do we need to rise up and accomplish? Well, the first, first thing that you're going to do, and I think it's necessary to do, is since prosecutors hold a lot of the weight that happens in this system that we live in. Right. You, you, gotta, you gotta vote in. And and, and 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 vote in progressive prosecutors, right? You know, and not only the, the, uh, that they be progressive, that we make them accountable. Citizenship is making about making governance accountable to you, not for other interests, to you collectively, to you individually as citizens. So that's what that's what the citizenship means, and that's what making progressive as well as those who, who, who are certainly in power, making them and, and fight for them and vote them out of power when they're not doing the will of the people itself. Right. But that's one step in a sense. 
And we have to understand the history itself. And this history is important to understand. And the, where do we, how do we get here? As, as Dr. King often said, how do we get here and where do we go to? Exactly. And, and that thing, where do we go to? A wonderful book by Richardson, Slavery by Another Name, where he raised a wonderful book that all of us should read and understand the history and the role that the, the court system and the sheriff's department played in every single former state, state, former state in the Confederacy, every right. single one. These, the web gangs uh, penalizing and criminalizing African-Americans for just playing dice or playing something or doing something or just being what they call vagrants in everything. So all these things are part of what is the history, what we call criminalization. Remember, the idea of policing was a phenomenon that came out of, out of, out of these states in these places where, where one, that you had runaway slaves. So you had to you had to get together, draw together men and volunteers who were slave catchers. Right. You know, who were slave, as they call the slave patrol. They, the fact that they didn't say they didn't say they said specifically nothing about their, their responsibility. And most of them were working white people, poor white people who became part of the slave patrol. Mm -hmm. And that's to make sure that you kept slaves who were property, quote unquote, mm -hmm. you know, they were property. Let's dis let's distinguish what the, who they were, not citizens. They were property. And that property, they were the same, they were treated the same kind of way that your horse was treated or your cow was treated or your pigs were treated. They were property and they had value because of who they all were property. So you had the slave patrols all through this happened happening. And then you had after this after Reconstruction, you had the threat of violence, that lynching, and after Reconstruction, you had in place this system in which, in which you were penalized, penalized for being black, or penalized for being not having uh, someone that you can refer to as the, your overseer or you master. Had, you had the All these systems of which, which you had to do involuntary slavery had you taken away from your family and placed in camps, work camps, and those work camps including working working in 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 in, in the fields, the cotton fields. Those work camps right. include working in steel uh, steel manufacturing. Those work camps in, include mining. All those things were part of this history that often vanishes, or this history is that's forgotten, or that's not told us as well. Right. And so, you know, not only that, how do we, in the modern aspect, right, you know, historically, we've seen interactions like this before. But in the modern aspect, how do we ease racial tensions today? Like, I asked earlier, is reparations the answer? You know, well, well, is, well, it, is it well, a reorganization well, of society that we need? Suppose we said reparations represented rebuilding African-American communities even right. though some of those communities have been gentrified. Right. The community that I lived in, live here in San Francisco, at one point was primarily African-American. And often we, we are only temporary residents of wherever it is. Before, before we moved in here and inhabited these homes in the community I lived in because of white flight to the, the suburbs. And, and what happened was institutions promoted 
suburbs and the expansion, and in those suburbs that that they moved to, white black people weren't allowed to buy in those suburbs all over this country. So there's a pattern of 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 of, of segregation and pushing black people away from with, um, uh, being full citizens within this country, whether it's redlining and all this. We have, when we look at this, we cannot talk about this until we look at the past. So what does it mean? What does reparation, what could reparations mean? Rebuilding our schools, rebuilding low, low income housing, you know, what could reparations be? It can create the kind of work as, 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 uh, 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 Jeremy Rifkin in his work, his book, The End of Work. Jeremy Rifkin writes about socially responsible work. What is that socially responsible work? Right. Creating dare, daycare and providing people with jobs, you know, creating other ways in which they can, they can be a, a, a commu in their community service mm -hmm. and not in that community service, they can actualize themselves in a real way as citizens. These are the kind of things that we can talk about in reparation, really rebuilding our schools. Right. Re rescuing the public school system as the school system becomes uh, the public school system becomes privatized or chartered and whatever we have to rescue the public school system it is the gateway and the pathway to citizenship in the 21st century as it was in the 20th century as well right and so you know kind of moving towards a specific avenue uh, let's talk about the prison industrial complex and mass incarceration, right? It's become this economic stimulus. And I think personally, it has been ingratiated within predatory capitalism about how there's an economic advantage for those stakeholders in the prison industrial complex. And like you said, it's been privatized. People profit from the misery of other incarcerated individuals. So I want to ask, what are the steps that we need to take? Because we've seen public outrage about the death of George Floyd and Trayvon Martin and Breonna Taylor. What steps do we need to take to direct that same passion towards the prison industrial complex, potentially even reforming prisons or moving so drastically to abolish prisons? Well, one of the things that, since I'm an abolitionist, one of the things that we move toward, whatever the actions we take, is to abolish prison itself. You know, if you, if, of course, there are places where people are dangerous to not only uh, 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 to, to African and African American communities, but to all communities, etc. And certainly, there has to be a place for that. But some of the petty things, if you if you look at the situation with with, let's say, if you legalize if you legalize marijuana. Right. for recreational purpose or medicinal purpose. If you legalize marijuana in some sense, what, what does that, how does that reduce the kind of court cases and everything else that you find? And there are other ways that you can do that. Yes, you have to, you have, to have law enforcement and you have to have judges to, pen, to penalize people. But what you have, prisons are no longer a place where, they, where, they, where the, 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 those men and women who are caught up in that prison industrial complex, place where they can learn and they can grow and they can be an asset to to uh, uh, to communities. How do you reintegrate them back into community as productive citizens? Right. You know, and the fact the fact that you take all signs of citizenship away, just in Florida and other places, in some places what we've had is that men and women 
who had felony records, et cetera, et cetera, are able to vote now. It was something passed about two years and two years ago in the election uh, in, in 2018, where voters got the right to, as uh, uh, men and women who have been incarcerated got the right to vote. So there's yeah. different kind of ways in which you can break up that. But you have to be able to, to connect and you have to say, how can we be responsible human beings? And the question is, what do we mean by being a responsible human being? How do we take care of those? You know, how do we end the, the prison, uh, uh, the, 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 the industrial complex, the prison industrial complex? We have to, de we have to just at, at the beginning, as a lim is eliminate and, and, and eliminate prisons for pri private prisons. They have to be. If they have no accountability, there's no accountability. The pr prison has to have some sort of accountability to right. what happens inside. It has to be some sort of accountability in how our men are treated within these places. All the prisons that we find that, are, find that are built are built in such a way is that they further dehumanize those people who are incarcerated. Is that what we want to do? These are the questions that we have to ask them. There are other models. You know, we can talk about films, you know, when, when Michael Moore's uh, a wonderful film, Who Do We Invade Next? Right. You know, a wonderful film looks at education in other countries, looks at pris the prison system in other right. countries They're, like that, right. and they seem more humane in a sense. What are the ways in which we can right. find these humane and and and, and 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 move away from these draconian attitudes, draconian policies right. around around prisons. Right. And I and, and I and, and, and once again, and to abolish the death penalty. Right. And I I completely agree. I think it's an incontrovertible fact that there are alternatives, rehabilitative alternatives to prisons. I think there's restorative justice policies. I think there's re-entry programs. And I specifically agree that education needs to be made a priority for those individuals and mental health services need to be avidly requestable to those that are incarcerated. And, and kind of moving towards this position of, you know, an approach that, that those in these positions of power should be taking I want to ask you, you know, what do you think about some politicians, you know, dogmatic and regimented approach to reforming? You know, it's, it's often been dubbed radicalism by a certain majority within the polarized political field. So, you know, what merits a true change in our, you know, oppressive systems? Well, with merit, merits a true change. And, 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 and don't forget, when we talk about the prison industrial complex, if we begin to, if, if our children matter, if they do matter, we, we provide all the elements for them to grow and prosper and the potential of their prosperity, you know, no matter what color they are, if they do matter. Right. Then what we do, we place in front of us, we place as a user tools we have available, the technology we have available, the tools we have available, the putting resources into schools, not just throwing money into it, but specifically target those who are the most vulnerable and the ones who, the, the ones who, who basically can, can who, who, who are been systemically left out of the system. And that has been often women of color, men of color, and who've been left out of the system. How do we tar target them? 
by providing the tools necessary for them to be productive citizens when they become adults, you know? How do we provide education that is, that is useful to them? How do we provide kind of jobs where they feel like they can be a part of a, the community? Not, not jobs created by the fast food industry. Those are, those, are not, those are no jobs, that, those are not really jobs. They have no end means to it. I'm not saying that we don't need, we should have a fast food industry, but even with the fast, in the fast food industry, we should pay people a living wage. We should be paying at least $15 an hour. Those are the kind of things that happen in the fast. So you come out of school, you come out of school, you finish school, you maybe hasn't, you haven't done as well as you wanted in school. We all mature at different age levels and at different points in our lives. We be mature, but mature, maturity doesn't often come at 18 when you graduate from high school or something else. What are the elements that we now attempt to enrich, enrich people's lives? How do we get art and, and art and music and different forms of interaction back into, uh, back into uh, right. to our schools? You know, they've been removed from our schools. At the same time that, we, that, that those things have been removed from our schools, our school, the attention in the high school football has, in, has just blown up, you know, in different places. And they're often the states that have the most inequity in, the, in, the, in their history and in their presence as well. So there's, there's, different, there's different ways and different things that we can talk about and, and, and initiate, initiate, but communities have to have a voice in it. Right. And so really what I'm trying to... You know, it, we, we have, it has to be on the local level. Right. This is nothing I'm saying. Yeah. And I'm really trying to get to this, which is, is radicalism the answer to, to our to our prayers? You know, is that the approach we need to take? Well, I tell you what, nothing, never, changes never happen. Uh, Frederick Douglass says it beautifully when he says, power never concedes itself on demand, it never has and never will. Yes. So the understanding that it has to be constant ongoing challenges to this power. We don't want to institutionalize in the ways that we want us to do our response to inequity, our response to injustice, you know, and right. believe that it happens often in the state house or in the federal government or at city hall. We have to believe that we the people have the power we the people have to organize. And I'm saying an organize in a different way. We often terms about terms about organize. We often look to some sort of um, some sort of leader, some sort of uh, iconic leader for us. Right. The leadership in, 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 in this country comes from us. Right. It's from you know, defeating organized organized resistance, building organized resistance. And defeating that is a hard thing to do. Right. So you have multiple leaders. You have you have them coming together and discussing and demanding what they want. And and it's not rocket scientists only. We don't have to go to we don't have to invoke, uh, invent a vaccine for that that makes us better organizers. It's within us already. It doesn't have to make it make a vaccine to make us big big citizens who are engaged in what is happening in their communities. It, you don't need a vaccine for that. It's in us. It's always in us. When we see people from the bottom up, and this is what, when we feed them and we dispel the kind of levels of fear, and there are fears, 
they feel ways in which they make us feel inadequate. They ways in which they, they neutralize our power. We have to find ways in which we excel and expand our power as we the people. Right. And, you know, I, I completely agree. Um, and, and, and my last question is really, Danny, are you getting too old for this? I am not getting, sometimes I feel <laughs> old, but I, I, I hope that, that as, as, much as, as much as I've seen, um, I, was, um, I was listening to watching Jim Lawson uh-huh. at, at the, the eulogy for John Lewis. Uh-huh. And boy, was he something else. That was a 91-year-old Jim Lawson. Right. It wasn't, he, he probably had more power, more power in, in 1953, you know, as a young Jim Lawson or 1960, as a, 60 years ago, as a 31-year-old Jim, Jim Lawson. But I'll tell you what, he told us, he showed us something in, in, in his word and the texture of his words and the explosiveness of his words, explosiveness of his words that, you know, there's a lot of left in the tank. I know there there's is. There's a lot of left in the tank here as well. <laughs> I know and, you know, I think you've become a doyen in your field. Uh, and, you know, I, I continue and I wish you the best of luck. You know, you're always welcome back if you have any thoughts. Um, and, and I'll be sure to link your social media accounts uh, down below. Um, and again, I thank you for, for taking your time and, and, you know, answering my questions. I really appreciate it. now, thank you for, for making this happen. For sure. It only happens because you were persistent in, in, in saying, let's, make, let's do this. Of course. Because we know that whatever we do, it, 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 it's our expression of our ideas and our expression of the possibility, even as a senior, as, even as someone who, who basically is considered, uh, they call me Baba, uh, you know what it means? It was right, just right. a sign of reverence and everything else, you know? Right. And there, and the fact that, that we're having this conversation, generation, one generation to the, 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 the emerging generation, the right. generation that is now, the generation of this moment. That's a beautiful thing, brother. Yeah. I, uh, you kind of left me speechless, but uh, I'll leave it right there. Thank you so much. And, and hopefully we can keep fighting the progressive fight. Um, for anybody who's interested, please check out um, Danny Glover's movies. Um, personally, I've seen all of them, but you know. Uh, for those of you that <laughs> all right, brother. We'll All right, there, brother. Thank you, brother. All Thank right. you so much. Peace out. All right, then. All right.